you're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. As Neil said, we are in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 to 25, if you want to get out your Bibles as we read together. For those of you that don't know me, my name is Beth. I am a co-leader of the Glen Waverley GC, and during the week, I am a teacher on the school on the peninsula. Let's read together. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin, you are beaten for it? You endure. But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls." Thanks so much, Beth. City on a Hill, how are we? Good to see you. My name is Nick. I get the joy of being the lead pastor of this church, and today the joy of unpacking this text with you. Uh, I wasn't preaching last week, so I have not had yet a Sunday where I've been able to see the beauty of your uh, nose and and lower uh, face. You guys are incredibly attractive, Uh, but thanks for being with us. Um, We're going to dive straight in today, uh, but before we do, I'm going to pray for us. So please do, uh, as I do that, whether it's a screen or in paper form, get your Bibles ready because we'll be thick in the text today. Let me pray. Gracious God, we uh, thank you so much that we get to gather together uh, in this environment right now uh, and we get to gather around your word. And we are conscious that when we open the Bible, you're the one who speaks. And so would your word uh, cut us deep today with comfort, with encouragement, with rebuke, with challenge, with building us up into the spiritual house that you want us to be. So Jesus, we ask that you would come and be big. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would come and be powerful and at work in us so that you might change us and transform us and and, uh, impact how we live our lives in the day today. So be with us now, we pray in Jesus' mighty name and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Well, you probably know that last Friday, uh, the government kind of removed the work from home if you can edict. And I'm sure there were probably some people that when that was removed thought that it would kind of be like Boxing Day at Maya in the 90s, like the doors would open and everyone just flock back into work. How awesome it is to be back in the office. Well, it doesn't seem like that happened because all of us have different relationships with our workplaces. And we know particularly the pandemic has kind of disrupted work probably now for good, that there is now a a new normal with how we approach the workplace. Uh, But it has exposed something that we perhaps already knew, but now feel it all the more. And that is that uh, sometimes work can feel like a blessing. 
Like it's just something that enriches our lives and we feel called to do what we're doing and it can add so much meaning and significance to what we do. But there's other times where work can feel like an absolute curse. That we don't have to be a gardener to experience what Adam experienced in the garden when God said that, that work was now going to work against you. Work works against all of us. Uh, sometimes I like scrolling Reddit, uh, and you do so to kind of check out the, the latest meme that, that, that's going to make you laugh, but also to get a bit of the, the public sentiment. You know, I'm a, I'm a pastor. I can put this down to kind of, this is, this is, this is work. You've know, you got you to know, what, what are the people thinking about certain things that are going on in the world? But I do happen to come across a certain subreddit, a channel, uh, every now and then called Anti-Work. Anti-Work is like the real-life uh, office space if you've seen the movie, uh, where it's just whinging and complaining about work. Uh, And so I have an image here of just one example of what it is like on anti-work. Here's someone who is just complaining that they were pulled up by their boss for being 24 seconds late back to work after lunch. And their boss used the uh, reasoning that, hey, if we just let everybody do this, and if we just let everybody do this every single lunchtime, that would be thousands of hours of productivity. Thousands of hours of of profit. And so everyone kind of upvotes it, of course, like, yeah, stick it to the man. Like, this is, this is awful. And so sometimes there are moments like this. And then other times on uh, the Anti-Work channel, there are uh, suggestions for how to go about getting back at your bosses or at your supervisors. Uh, and so I have a, another example here of somebody who was uh, apparently falsely accused. Uh, they worked at a cinema, falsely accused of stealing the cardboard cutouts that hang out at a cinema, and so they were fired. But so angry were they that they were fired that they, uh, before telling their colleagues that they would no longer be coming to work, they swapped shifts with all of their colleagues on the weekend. Uh, And so it just so happened that nobody turned up uh, to work at the cinema on this particular weekend. And again, everybody was congratulating them for sticking it to the corporate fat cats who were just there for the bottom line and do not care about people. Such is the experience with work. Now, don't get any ideas from, from those things uh, for your own workplace and relationships there, but it does uh, expose and probably uh, hone in on something that all of us experience, that, that our relationship with our boss, our relationship with our supervisor, our relationship with our, our colleagues, it, it really affects us. It, it is a, a big thing, uh, a, a, the relational dynamic that goes on in the workplace. Now, you might remember that we are in the midst of a section in the book of First Peter, where Peter is telling his readers, and he's going to tell us today, how we should respond to certain authorities in our life. And last week, he looked at how we should respond to civic authority, to the, to the government, to the emperor in that day. Today, he's going to turn our attention to how we should respond to the authorities that impact us on the day-to-day level, particularly the authorities in our workplaces, where we, where we go to try to put food on the table try to earn a living for us and our families. And so today's text, he's going to keep with the spirit of last week and tell us that for those of us who are under the authority of others, we want to tread lightly around that authority. We should, we should be subject to, we should be in submission to them, even if they mistreat us. Perhaps especially if they mistreat us. And so you'll see in our text that he writes to Christians who have recently become, or or servants who have recently become Christians. 
And now we can't equate first century slavery and servanthood with modern day workplaces, but there are some principles, we'll see, that continue, and I think in the 21st century are best applied in our workplace relationships. How should we respond when someone above us on the the org chart has it out for us because of our faith? How should we handle working environments that have a competing moral vision for what should be celebrated? How should we behave in a work culture that might add to the social pressure we feel being Christians? And so we're going to hear what Peter has to say, and then we're going to dive into the reasons that Peter gives us for why we should do what he says. And so our passage is going to start in uh, 1 Peter 2, verse 18. Peter says this, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. And so to help set the scene, let's rewind 2,000 years into the first century in modern-day Turkey, on the outskirts of the Roman Empire. It would be good to know that uh, in this world, Slavery, including domestic slavery, or what Peter here calls uh, being a, a servant, it was just an accepted element of the social structure at the time. That there had, at this time, never been a, a kind of different competing vision for what human life and the social stratosphere uh, could look like. And so nobody kind of saw that this was, this was wrong or, or something to be, to be overturned. There were times where some slaves would would rise up together in protest at the mistreatment of their masters, but then they'd kind of go back into the structure of the day at the time. Now, slaves or or servants, perhaps uniquely in the the Roman world, were actually given quite a lot of clout or importance at the time. They were seen as extensions of the average Roman household. One book that I was reading described some of the tasks and responsibilities that, that servants would be given to do uh, in Roman arist- aristocratic families. They were personal attendants, they were hairdressers, they were childminders, tutors, doctors, midwives, financial managers, accountants, secretaries. People at the time could, could fall into slavery, perhaps because they, they found themselves in debt and needed to pay it off. But then also they could work themselves out of slavery and actually end up managing a household of their own. And so we should have in our minds when we think back to this context that Peter is writing to, that the way we read slavery back then, it it kind of looks a little bit more like Downton Abbey and less like 12 years a slave. More like what the, the, the more civil kind of household looked like rather than the oppressive and abusive uh, slavery of more modern times. And so you see why we might be able to apply this to uh, this text to our modern environment today. And yet, even if we can apply it, it was still slavery. And because it was still slavery, there was always the uh, kind of inevitable experience of a servant being on the wrong end of the abuse of power of a master. That their mood would impact upon the life and the lived experience of the servants. For sure, some of them would be good and gentle, but as Peter says, some would also mistreat them. Some would would use that power unjustly. And this was all the more true for servants who had become Christians because the gospel had gone out and and people were hearing about Jesus and people were committing their lives to Jesus. And so there was this growing suspicion about these people who were now calling themselves Christians and saying to each other, hey, we're, we're brother and sister. 
It was all really weird, and socially there was a lot of suspicion about them. And so you can imagine that masters of servants who had kind of adopted this new life started to become suspicious of them. And so Peter says, how should they respond when they're on the receiving end of that injustice? How should these newfound Christian servants behave when uh, one of these masters does indeed come down hard on them because they've now committed to Jesus? Peter says, well, actually, the answer doesn't make a difference about the authority. It doesn't make a difference about what that person and how those people are treating you. Christian, you should be submission. You should be subject to the authority all the same. Now, let's not let Peter just put this on us without thinking a bit more about it. Let's not let it pass by because a little bit like last week, if you're anything like me, this is going to really grind your gears. Because if your heart is like mine, and I'm guessing it probably is, there is no way that you are submitting yourself to somebody who isn't making your life better, let alone somebody who is making your life worse, somebody who is out to get you, somebody who is mistreating you or treating you unfairly. Sometimes comedians can home in on the human heart in a very disarming way, and I particularly enjoyed recently hearing uh, Louis C.K. describe how in our day today, everything is awesome and nobody's happy. Everything is awesome and nobody's happy. And we can think about something that we've been kept from doing recently, and that is uh, flying on an airplane. Can you, can, you, can you imagine? We don't have to imagine, actually. Can you, flying on an airplane is miraculous. It is absolutely incredible. You get to sit in a padded chair in like a, this, this metal fuselage, 10,000 meters above the ground, and you are traveling at 900 kilometers an hour to destinations that you have never been able to get access to pre-aeroplane. Even better than that, when you're sitting in this padded chair, you get to watch movies, you get to watch TV. If you are traveling long enough, you get flight attendants to come and, and check if you are doing okay. Can I bring you anything? Do you, do you want a drink? Do you want fries with that? Is there, is there, is there food that I can come and, and, and give you? People kind of serving us. We're the masters on the airplane. We are in that position. And then what happens is that we try to move the seat back. And the seat only goes back that far. And suddenly it's the worst thing in the world. You can't, I, I cannot believe that the seat can only go back that far. And the one thing we remember when we get off the plane and people say, oh, how was your flight? It was like, terrible. It was terrible. And particularly in Australia, like we have all the more reason to be particularly grateful for aeroplanes because we're on an island. We are stranded on an island. We have no way of traveling the world. Every other way of getting off this island, you're going to die. You're going to get eaten by sharks. Something is going to kill you if you try to get off this island, save for the aeroplane. And we fly to New Zealand. It would have taken us 10 years to get to New Zealand in any other way. We get there in four hours, and what do we tell everyone? Man, the flight was delayed by 20 minutes. I cannot believe this. It's the worst thing in the world. And so that is the state of the human heart. Our hearts are so prone to be bitter at an inconvenience and so how much more are they inclined to be bitter and self-defensive when we feel mistreated? I know I have a, a very keen sense of justice, or perhaps a very keen sense of injustice, particularly if it's injustice against me, when I feel like I have been wronged or, or 
intentionally misunderstood. You can be prone to respond with, with malice, with anger, with getting even, perhaps with shop, uh, swapping shifts with your other colleagues so that you can get back at the man. And it triggers our, our fight or flight response and we want to protect ourselves. And Peter knows all about that kind of response because we actually have the data on Peter's life and how he has responded in these moments. We have the, the biographies of Jesus. They're called the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And in it, we have uh, this moment where, where Jesus starts to tell the disciples about how his life's going to end, how the religious elites are going to come and, and arrest him and, and, and take him and accuse him and then kill him. And Peter stands up. His, his gut reaction is to get up and say, far be it from you, Lord. I will never let that happen to you. They will never touch you. And Jesus looks at him and he says, Get behind me, Satan. For you are putting your mind not on the things of God, but on the things of man. Because the things of man are self-protection, self-service, self-defense. And it's that same idea that has Peter go straight for the sword when that time ultimately comes. And Jesus is arrested by the soldiers. He, he whips out the sword and he cuts off the ear of one of the soldiers. And so how Peter used to respond is how you and I perhaps could respond now. If we're mistreated at work, if we feel a sense of undue pressure from our supervisors, especially for our Christian faith, our gut reaction might be, we're going to hit back here. We're going to use the world's means to, to get back at what it's doing to us here. And so we could uh, claim discrimination and, and persecution and set up a, a GoFundMe account or write an open letter compelling others to sign it. We could uh, metaphorically pull out the sword. It's just a dog-eat-dog kind of world anyway. We're just doing what is our right to do. But that was Peter. But now that same Peter is telling us that we should be subject to submissive, respectful of the authorities in the day-to-day -day trenches of our lives, even when we are mistreated. And so Peter's learned the way of Jesus. That's not self-defense, self-protection, self-service, but self-denial. Take up your cross and follow me, Jesus says. And applying this passage is really going to feel like taking up your cross. And so what happened to Peter? How did Peter go from the guy that we see in the Gospels to the guy that we have here, telling us to be submissive to these authorities? Well, thankfully, Peter gives us the reasons for why we should respond like this. So for the rest of the time together, let's, let's move through uh, Peter's reasoning, because he takes us like down into the depths of the basement of his heart, uh, and why he has come to see that this is the better way to respond. And so let's talk about four fours for our submission, because Peter gives us four fours. I've sometimes talked about when you see the word therefore in the Bible, you should ask yourself, what is the therefore, therefore? Well, the little brother of the word therefore is the word for. When we read the word for, particularly in a book like this, we should see the word because. It's a, it's a reason. For X, Y, Z. And so Peter gives us uh, four of these fours for why we should respond in subjection and submission. The first one is in verse 19. 
It says, for this is a gracious thing, because this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. And so Peter tells us that it is a gracious thing. And the word here for gracious is the word in Greek, charis, which means grace, unmerited, undeserved kindness or favor. And so essentially what Peter is saying here is that when we suffer unjustly, it is an opportunity for us to show grace. That whenever a Christian has to endure such circumstances, to do so is to display God's grace. But there are some qualifiers that would be helpful for us to chat about. One of them is that the suffering needs to be unjust. I remember when I was uh, working straight out of uni and I worked at a charity, a not-for-profit, as kind of like a a graduate assistant accountant. Uh, And so I was uh, doing the very old-school style bank reconciliation, donation processing, journal entry kind of stuff. Uh, And it was a kind of a a clock-on at 9.02 a.m., clock-off at 4.58 p.m. kind of job where you kind of just rock up, you put the headphones on, you go into automation mode, you, you just crunch the number, you, you do what you need to do. And so my heart wasn't really in it at the time, kind of my heart was into these, these glorious truths I was learning in the Bible. And it just so happened that at this time, uh, YouTube had just come out. And so there were all these, these, these new ways of receiving teaching from the Bible. And so I was watching sermons or lectures and all this kind of thing with my headphones in, on YouTube from 9 to 5, give or take some meetings and lunch breaks and all that in between. It also was the time where unlimited data plans hadn't yet come to the office. And so people, the IT guys, were conscious of who was using all the data. And I remember the time where the IT guy at the office printed out the the data usage of our office and went round to every office asking if we knew anything about why there might be such a a strong kind of lifting of of the data usage amongst the office until he got to my office. And it was me. And I was reprimanded for using too much data. uh, And so I was in trouble. Now, being reprimanded for not honoring the company policy, being reprimanded for not utilizing or stewarding the the resources of the organization in, in the best way, that's one thing. That's not what Peter's talking about. He is not talking about the suffering that you might feel from being a lazy employee. He's not talking about the suffering, the, 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 the kind of the, the aggression you might cop for eating somebody else's sandwich in the communal fridge. He's not talking about you being a jerk and then receiving the punishment for it. No, that's just dealing with your own consequences. Peter here is talking about mistreatment because of our faith. What makes our endurance gracious in these circumstances is enduring while being mindful of God, he says. And being mindful of God is is perhaps the hardest thing that Peter calls us to here. Because when you are snowed under with work responsibilities and you've got to work late to get it done or you've got to get up early and burn burn the midnight oil, when you've got things at home that you've got to take care of, you're thinking about what you want to do on the weekend, 
your head swirling with the, the, all the news going on about COVID and what's happening overseas and Warnie's passed away. And then you've got your Facebook family messenger feed and you've just got news from your extended family that's impacting you. And then you're thinking about your kid and how there's an issue there that you need to take them to the pediatrician about. And then you've got your fantasy football team and the AFL season starting soon. So you've got to Get, 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 get up on that and do your research for that. And you've got all these episodes of Survivor to catch up on because you've been working so much. And then the car insurance bill comes in and the childcare bill comes in at the same time. And, oh, they came at the same time. And then something happens between you and your boss. It is very hard in those moments to respond, being mindful of God. But Peter is telling us that our interactions, our responses to our, our supervisors and indeed to, to all our authorities should, should throw from our minds being centered on God. Malcolm Muggeridge, uh, uh, he was a journalist and a spy in World War II and then he became a Christian later on in his life and became somewhat of a, a cultural commentator. He once wrote a very pithy, short, powerful statement, never forget that only dead fish swim with the stream. Only dead fish swim with with the stream. See, to live the, the Christian life, to stay faithful to what God is calling us here, we're actually going to need to be people who, in the day to day trenches of our lived experience, do something different. That our psychology actually has to be different. The way we respond has to be different. That we need to be mindful of God. And so, if you put yourself in work mode right now, if you think about what, what Monday holds for you, where is God in that moment? Between leaving the house and coming home or, or going to the study and turning on the laptop if you work from home and then clocking off, where is God in between those times? How does God impact the, the, the thought processes of your day to day? How much of your mindfulness is mindfulness about God, about who He is? about His presence with you, about His promises for you, about His power given to you, about His call upon your life, about the, the opportunities that He might potentially, hopefully, be bringing before you in that day, about His ability to empower you, to show grace in the workplace. See, if we, if we aren't mindful of God, then we're just going to be carried along. The workday will happen to us. We'll be carried along by the, the emotions of the time. We'll be, we'll be carried along by the news of the day. We'll be carried along by our flesh. We'll be carried along by the, whatever the, the, the socially accepted ways to respond to unjust behavior or to authority. But you're not dead. In Christ, you're alive. He's filled you with His Spirit. You have the power to endure, the power to be proactive in displaying grace. The power to, to respond with respect when everything in you wants to hit back. When everything in you wants to get even. God's given you the power to do what He calls you to do in this text. Enduring suffering is an opportunity to show grace and we need to be mindful of God as we do so. Peter goes to his, his second four in verse 20. For what credit is it if when you sin you're beaten for it? you endure. But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. 
You see, that, that definition of grace is, is undeserved kindness. Undeserved kindness. And so if you do the wrong thing and you don't fulfill the responsibilities that you're paid to fulfill or you lose your friends because actually you're a jerk, these things that you have to endure, are you just enduring the consequences for your own behavior? But if you maintain your integrity, if you stand on your uh, biblically informed principles, if you are faultless in character and then you suffer, when you endure that, you endure in a gracious way. You show the grace of God at work in your heart and in your life. It is a gracious thing in the sight of God, Peter says. But this four, if, we, if you think about it a little bit more, exposes something that is very helpful for us as Christians to be uh, keeping intention here as we think about submission and being subject to authorities. Particularly helpful in our days, this happens more and more, uh, because we see here that, that Peter's thinking reveals that there is a greater standard of good than just whatever your boss says. There is a greater ethical, moral standard above and beyond the standards of your workplace. He says, in fact, that sometimes our vision of what's good is going to be in contrast to the people who have power over us. And in that case, Peter says that actually we might sometimes suffer for doing good. They might not like it. The powers that be might get irked by the fact that we want to do the right thing. And so when the boss is putting pressure on you to fudge the numbers, when the board meeting's coming up and you know, he comes alongside and says, hey, look, we really need to make this look better. When there's other, some other pressure to, to kind of bypass doing what's ethical and what is right, it's probably going to be a moment to to humbly, submissively hold fast to what is good instead of what the master says. When the workplace is is getting ahead with the latest progressive campaign that that celebrates a, a different vision of human sexuality, and they want you to be proactive and, and an active participant in the celebration of such things. That might be a time where you need to humbly hold fast to what is good. But notice Peter's call here, that the call isn't for us to be a, a culture warrior in the opposite direction. The call for us is to maintain a spirit of subjection, even if there are times where we have to hold fast to what we know to be good. And so we live in this tension that we have been born again to a living hope, he's told us. We are elect exiles. We are his people. We are a a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a people for his own possession. And so we submit to our masters, but knowing that Jesus is our greatest master. And as we submit to our greatest master, Jesus, he calls us to submit to other authorities in our life. And so we hold this tension of sometimes having to say no to people who are lower than Jesus so that we might always say yes to Jesus. And Peter then takes us further with another four, because we know, and you probably experienced this, that that tension is very hard. It takes courage to be humble. It takes courage and strength to be submissive. So where are we going to get this kind of courage? Where are we going to get this kind of strength? Well, Peter takes us there, because he perhaps senses what we might be feeling as we read it. 
And so he says in verse 21, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. So often we, we want to know our calling as Christians. Should I work in this workplace, this industry, this vocation? Peter says, no, this is your calling. To follow in the footsteps of Jesus. That when you're suffering, when you're being mistreated, when you're feeling that's the slight of, of disrespect or being made fun of for your faith or being taken advantage of, to hold fast to Jesus and follow in his footsteps. And my six-year-old boy started uh, primary school about a month ago now. And so we're in a, a new season as a family where we are trying to help him to learn to read. And so every single day he comes home with a new reader uh, that we have to help him read. And there's a, a strategy, which is uh, an interesting strategy that the school has adopted. Uh, and I assume every primary school probably does this. Uh, to help little kids learn how to read. And they call it using your eagle eye. Essentially, that is a cool way of saying that they want the kids to cheat in how they're reading. So instead of reading the words, to, to watch, look at the pictures. And when you come to a word you don't know, probably it's whatever the picture is tells you what the word is. And so we as parents think, man, this kid is amazing. He's, he's, he like knows all these long words, incredible. No, he's just cheating. He's using, the, he's using the picture. He's looking to the picture. You know, in our own Christian life, you don't, you don't need to know all the ins and outs of every single word that is written in the Scriptures. You don't need to have parsed out the Greek and the Hebrew. You don't need to work out and have kind of a solid conviction about every second order, third order, fourth order theological issue. No, to be obedient, to be mature, you just need to look to Jesus. You need to obey what you already know. Actually put into practice some of the central things that you've already seen that Jesus himself has lived out in his approach to suffering. And so Peter wants us to use our eagle eye, to, to be mindful of God, but not just in a vague way. But when we're mindful of God, he, he means for us to be thinking about Jesus. What did Jesus do? How did Jesus respond in this moment? What would Jesus have me to say when I'm asked this? And Peter doesn't want to just kind of leave that up to our imagination as if we, you know, he has a, he's a very low bar for what he assumes we know about how Jesus behaved because he goes straight to what Jesus did in verse 22 and 23. He says, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. We see this in the biographies about Jesus. In the final chapters, we see that Jesus had lived a, a, an upstanding, honorable, morally perfect life for all of his life. That he had spent himself, poured himself out, healing people, teaching people, loving people, welcoming people, restoring people. That he was brought before the authorities. And at roughly age 33, they had nothing that they could say about him that he'd done wrong. He lived a public life for the three or four years prior to that. And they had nothing on him. No one could accuse him. And so they lied. They made things up. 
And they criticized him and they abused him and he was spat upon by soldiers and he had his beard plucked out. He was mocked. He was laughed at in his suffering. One of the criminals crucified next to him, even as he's hanging there bloodied, starts mocking him and having to go at him. Now, if there was ever a moment where there might be just one kind of impulse of self-protection or self-defense that might have snuck into the heart of Jesus, this would be the moment. The definition of mistreatment, of injustice, Jesus was bearing it. And Peter tells us that he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Jesus knew that God knew. Jesus knew that God saw. Jesus knew that God would respond. Jesus knew that justice was coming. And so he endured. You see, often we set our minds on on the things of man, like Peter. And so we want to respond the way the world would. And even as Christians, sometimes we theologize our way into responding the way that the world would because we we, we live this side of, of Jesus having risen again. And we can read in Revelation of Jesus coming back with a sword coming out of his mouth. Justice will come and Jesus is going to bring it. And so we live in light of that reality and think, hey, we are going to be the bearers of the sword of God's judgment in the here and now. And so we want to take the country back. We want to change the culture. We want to tell everybody to get with God's program or else. And yet Peter points us not forward to Jesus' second coming, but points us back to Jesus' first. See, the the way to respond in these moments is not with the weapons of the world, but with the humility of Jesus in the self and the countercultural self-denial of Jesus as he entrusted himself to the Father. And so when you feel mistreated, respond with grace. When you feel unduly pressured, entrust yourself to God. When you're asked to walk a mile, be happy to walk two. When you're maligned or put out, be respectful and submissive. And of course, what compelled Jesus in this response was what Jesus himself was, he knew that he was doing. And Peter tells us about that. It says that he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. And that's very significant that Peter takes us there and it leads him to his, his final four. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Peter brings up a very significant chapter that was written 700 years before Jesus walked this earth in the book of Isaiah 53, where he says that he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And so here we see Peter's the secret to Peter's transformation. Because we've heard that that Peter had his mind on the things of man. Peter was a a cultural warrior who wanted to respond to the authorities in his life with the hand of justice. And yet he became this leader of the church who would humbly call the church to walk in humility and submission. We we know that what looked like bravery 
on Peter's behalf the night that Jesus was betrayed was actually feigned courage. Because behind his thoughts of the things of man was a cowardly heart. Because when actually push came to shove and, and Peter was there in the, in the courtyard as Jesus was being accused and mistreated, people came up to Peter and said, hey, hey weren't you with that guy? You, you, you were with Jesus. You're one of his friends. And Peter says, no, not me. You must be thinking about someone else. Couldn't, couldn't be me. Three times Peter denies Jesus. And the rooster crows and Peter runs away in despair knowing what he's done. Three times he bent to his fears of the world. Three times Peter ignored his own conscience. Three times he was unfaithful to his friend and to his saviour. And then three days later, Jesus rises again. And in the days that follow from Jesus' resurrection, we read about Peter going back to what he knows best, to to going back to to fishing. But Jesus is there on the beach and he, he calls Peter in. He wants that breakfast with Peter. And they sit down to eat the fish that that Peter's just caught. And Jesus asks him three times, Peter, do you love me? Peter says, of course, you you know I do. And three times Jesus responds to him, Peter, feed my sheep. Three betrayals, three moments of restoration. Peter knew that Jesus was personally forgiving him, restoring him, rebuilding him. And so Peter knows very personally there that, that Jesus was bearing his sin in his body on the cross. That Peter himself might die to sin and live to righteousness. He knows very personally that it was by Jesus' wounds that Peter was healed. He knows very personally that he was straying like a sheep. And as Jesus leaves the 99 to go after the one, the one in this case was Peter. And he was returned to the overseer and shepherd of his soul. And so Peter has experienced this reality personally. And because he's experienced this reality personally, it has completely transformed him. It changed him so much that according to to tradition, Peter himself would, would later be crucified by Nero for his faithfulness to Jesus. But he didn't want to die in the same way that his master did, that his Savior did. And so he asked to be crucified upside down. And so how do you respond to mistreatment and see it as an opportunity to show grace? You yourself need to have experienced the grace of God in Jesus. How do you have the courage to stand for what's good and right in the midst of a workplace or a family or a culture that's swimming the other way? You need to know that Jesus used all of his strength for your sake so that you could be reconciled with him. How do you have the courage in those moments when it feels like everything else wants you to do the opposite, to be subject to or in submission, to show humility, to suffer well? You need to know that Jesus himself has come to do that for you and for your eternal life. And so do you know this reality for yourself? Have you experienced the freeing, joyous good news that your sins have already hung on the tree. Your wounds have already been healed. Your sin has been paid for and you can be returned to the shepherd and and overseer of your soul. Do you know it's so personally that you are mindful of God and what He's done for you in Jesus tomorrow? 
you log in to work, when you get back into work mode and the emails are coming in thick and fast, to be mindful of God because He has changed all of who you are. You see, your working relationships, your next performance review, how you relate to your boss, it's not really about them. It's about you and Jesus. It's about where you're at with Jesus. And like every challenge in in the New Testament, every challenge in the Bible, it's not so much a test as it is an invitation. Jesus loves you so much that he wants to be this powerful in your life. Jesus loves you so much that he wants to be in your mind as you approach these situations in the workplace. Jesus loves you so much that he wants to be so central to your life and in your heart and in your psychology and in your self-perception and in the way that you relate to others that he makes a difference in those moments. So God has given you his own son that you might take up your cross and follow him into these spaces and serve him. God is calling you to endure for his sake that we might be who we call ourselves, a city on a hill, that we might shine in these workplaces as we respond with with countercultural joy, countercultural submission, countercultural freedom and life. So I'm going to close in prayer for us today. Uh, So I invite you to bow your heads, close your eyes. Uh, But I want to pray uh, in a slightly different way because I know that this particular call that Peter is asking of us, commanding of us, that God wants us to step into, it is hard. It is, is, is not natural for people like us. And so we need a power outside of ourselves to help us be the kind of people that Peter is calling us to be. And so if you yourself know and recognize that you need a power outside yourself to to have this kind of strength, this kind of courage, this kind of humility that lives in subjection and submission to authority, I'm going to ask you to stand up so that I might pray particularly for you uh, in my prayer to close us out this morning. So go ahead and if this is something you particularly need, please, I encourage you to stand right now and I'm going to pray. Let me pray. Gracious God, we praise you for your goodness, for your love, for your steadfastness, for your endurance. Lord, as we read this text, we are conscious that that you've had to endure us. Lord, we are conscious that, that we are the ones that have treated you unjustly. We are the ones who have sinned in a way that has led you to go to the cross. Lord, Peter denied you three times. We would have denied you four. Judas sold you for 30 coins. We would have sold you for less. So, Lord, we are sorry. We repent. And we ask you to come by your Holy Spirit. And help us see these realities as not just awesome for Peter back then, but true for us today. Lord, we thank you so much that you have borne our sin in your body on the tree. We pray that you might help us die to sin and live to righteousness. We thank you that you have, by your wounds, healed us, that we might do that. That like strange sheep, you have run after us and brought us back to the shepherd of our souls. Lord, would you push this reality down into our hearts that when we wake up tomorrow, when we get on the commute, when we log in, 
when we go to the work site, whatever it is that we need to do when we get into work mode, Lord, would we not get out of the identity, the mode, our union with you. Lord, make our relationship with you the most pressing, conscious reality of our life. So Lord, at every single moment that we face this week, and in these days that we live, Lord, we might respond in such a countercultural way that gives you glory and that testifies to your grace. And so do that in us, I pray, in Jesus' mighty name. And all of God's people said, Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.